We're going to go ahead and start today. And we are continuing uh, our series right through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, We preach right through books of the Bible. And so um, we spent the last several months getting to chapter 11. And so uh, up until this point, the book has focused on the centrality of Jesus Christ crucified and what that means for his people and how it informs their behavior, whether that's dealing with sexual immorality or whether that's engaging with the idols of our culture or any myriad of other things um, that that could get a Christian off track. That is one of the balloons from yesterday. All right. um, And so, uh, but last week we got to chapter 11. And instead of focusing now on just us as individual Christians in the world, the, the uh, focus of Paul's letter gets very narrow to what it means when individual Christians come together, what it looks like literally when we gather as the people of God in a church. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, uh, and then we're just going to chat about it for a little while. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. Amen. So, while the chapter opened with Paul being able to commend this church for the simple act of gathering together and praying and praising um, uh, God and, and hearing sermons and all that, um, he, he comes to other aspects of their gathering that he is so concerned with that he will give them some additional correction or instruction. And he's really hoping to guide them towards greater faithfulness. And so he comes to this section and he saves what is perhaps the most intense 
um, and, and most, most pointed rebuke he gives to any church in any of his letters in all of Scripture um, because he's so concerned with how the Corinthians have perverted communion, what he refers to as the Lord's Supper. And apparently, how they've gotten communion wrong is so bad that it overshadows all the good they have done by gathering, by praying, by praising, and by preaching. And so, he gives them a rebuke. He reminds them of the gospel that they have received. And then he invites them to reflect with the hope that they would repent and remain part of the body faithfully. And so that's what we are going to look at today. We're going to look at the rebuke, the, go- the gospel we received, and reflect and repent. So this first part of the scripture, verses 17 through, through 22 that we just read through, um, is really, like I said, a rebuke. And there is a, this is a letter written to a specific church. This was written to real people at a real time and place. And, and this church in Corinth has a lot of divisions to deal with. As we've seen throughout this letter, um, they have divided over specific personalities that they like within the church. They have certain pastors that they've lined up behind and said, I'm with this guy and I'm with that guy. They have, um, some of them have been divided in terms of thinking they have a whole bunch of theological knowledge where there's a whole bunch of people that don't know anything other than Jesus loves them. And, and that those same people have divided over whether they will engage with the, the culture and the festivals and things happening in the city or whether they will withdraw. And, and on this issue, when it came to communion, it's very specific, but they have actually now separated on what we call socioeconomic uh, reasons. To put quite simply, they're rich and they're poor and they are divided. And more than just that simple, there are some, some structural things in how the church in Corinth is arranged that if they don't keep their focus on, on, on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it will absolutely divide them. See, the way the church in Corinth functioned was unlike us, they didn't really have a big nice gathering space for a large group of people to come to regularly. So what they relied on was a series of house churches scattered throughout Corinth. So you'd have house churches in like the Arlington part of Corinth and the Lake Stevens part of Corinth and the Snohomish part of Corinth, right? Just like we have road groups. And so the people that were part of the church in Corinth, they more closely identified with just the few people that were in their road group. Maybe just their road group leader. Maybe just the campus that they attend right? They're, they're not so, so different than us in a lot of ways. And so um, they would, though, at certain points, a couple times throughout the year, gather together for one large gathering, right? We do that at like Christmas Eve. We try to do that sometimes at Good Friday, uh, August 25th, right? We're all going to be out um, at Kayak Point, and all three services across the county are gathering in one big gathering. And so they would, do, they would do something similar, um, but they've become so fragmented and so clicky as a church, and it really just became evident when they would gather together. And so they would gather um, probably at a, at, a, at a man named Gaius's house. Gaius was the richest man in the Corinthian church. He had the biggest house, and so they would gather together, um, and they would have a full meal. And everybody within the church who had been tithing and giving offerings throughout the whole year, they would use some church funds to have this, this kind of this celebratory family meal. 
And so what would happen is you're meeting at Gaius' house. He's made, uh, they've t- taken the money. They have made a nice buffet. Apparently this church really likes to party. They have an open bar as well, right? And so they have a big buffet and they have a big bar. And what was happening was because you had rich and poor, the rich people, they're the owners, right? They're the bosses. If you're an owner of a business or you're a boss, sometimes, not all the time, you have the freedom and flexibility to skip work a little early if you've got something important to go to. But the middle class and the poor uh, and the slaves even, they had to wait until their masters released them or until their, until their bosses would let them go because there wasn't like a Sunday like we have. There wasn't one day where nobody was, was working. There were, people had to actually you know, get off their normal lives and then come. So the rich people came early. And they gathered in one small little room where the buffet was at, right? You show up early to a party, where do you go? The kitchen, right? That's where all the food's at. And if you're, and if you're like me, you don't leave the kitchen during most of the party, right? Because that's where all the food's at. Well, so the rich people showed up, and they, they get in the kitchen, and there's only enough room right in the kitchen for a few people. And then out in the big gathering place, all of a sudden the poor and, and the middle class, they start filing in, and what they are seeing is very few people have consumed so much food and drank so much that they are drunk. And the people who have been contributing all year long to be part um, of this meal came with their kids and have been slaving away at work, literally slaving for some of them, come to this party and there's nothing left to eat or drink. And they are, it says, humiliated. And so, when they gathered, there was no sense that they were one united family. There was no sense um, that they were brought together by Jesus. There was just this sense that they were a collection of kind of individuals. And so the emphasis of this gathering was not on what they shared in common, but on what divided them. And, and this occasion that should have been significant for its focus on the crucified Jesus Christ that was intended to remind the church about their unity and holiness. And this, this situation that was not just to show the church, but to show the world outside what it looked like when God's people gather. Instead, it just became defined by selfishness and drunkenness and disunity. And so sadly, the church in Corinth looked no different than the world around it. The poor, the marginalized, the the middle class who thought that they were all free in Christ and they were all the same come to find they are just as marginalized in the church culture as they were in the culture around them. And it's it's sad. And and honestly, before I really dove into this text, I never even really considered it possible that it could be a bad thing for a church to gather. And yet, Paul says here, it would... It is not for the better, but it is for the worse. That literally it would have been better if everybody in that church just stayed home. It would have been better for their individual souls. And it certainly would have been better for the witness of the gospel to the church and to the world around them. And it's just dysfunctional. It's, it, Paul the, does go on though and he says that being divided is, isn't always a bad thing. He says in verse 19, sometimes divisions are necessary for the sake of gospel integrity and for the integrity of gospel mission. He says, yeah, it's it's okay that you are a little divided because sometimes divisions, he says, act like a test. 
checking the purity of, of fine metal to recognize who has a genuine and active faith in Jesus, who actually hopes other people come to faith in Him, and who is just merely professing that they're Christians. Right? Just, I just want to be counted along with these guys. And the problem with the church in Corinth wasn't that there, that there wasn't a plurality or a majority of faithful and active members sacrificially giving, um, living lives that are on mission. But the problem was um, the few who were not only failing to contribute, but were so selfishly focused on their own desires, their own consumption, that they were destroying the unity of the church. Just a few people is all it took to tell Paul it is worse when you guys get together than if you'd gotten together at all. That is sobering. When we think of what that means for us, we, should, we, we need to be more concerned with our individual quality and depth of our faith, with the quality and depth of our faith as a church people than we are in terms of just how many people can we get in here. I hope that our focus is always on the quality of faith with Christ rather than just having a quantity of people that say, yeah, I'll sign on for that. I'll be part of that church. I don't want us to be a bunch of Christians that live and act identical to the world around them. And, and by God's grace, here at Damascus Road, um, we have an awesome core of committed members who serve, who give, who live for the gospel in community and on mission. And, and Paul says you have to make divisions because it would be an absolute disservice to somehow lump in the people who are consumers and the people who are messing up unity with all of these faithful servants here. And so when we think about um, uh, what things look like here at Damascus Road, I just want us to have a picture of who we are as a church. Weekly, across our three services, we have 350 to 400 people meeting here in Marysville and and in Snohomish. And and that's awesome. And what's even cooler about that is that there are 300 people who are actually what we call covenant members. They've actually put pen on a piece of paper to say, I love this church. I love love the witness it gives to the gospel. I want to be on mission with this church. I I want to participate. I don't want to be a consumer. I want to contribute to what's going on here at Damascus Road. And that is incredibly, incredibly encouraging. We have staff members, many of who are volunteers. They literally get paid with like half a bagel and a cup of orange juice every Monday as they gather for, to just to volunteer and say, I'm going to give two, three, four hours a week just because I love what we're doing here as a church. I want to particularly praise our elders over the last uh, those that are bivocational, Randy Loveless, Nate Greenland, and Mark Hoxo, over the last two months as we've been praying and fasting on what the next two years could look like here at Damascus Road, these men ha- who have full-time jobs and full-time families have been spending hours, sometimes I'm not joking, into like 11.30 at night for meetings and answering emails, lengthy emails, processing their thoughts, want to faithfully this church. They're not coming asking what can I get here? They're just contributing to the body. We have road group leaders who every week clean their house, have their kids help them clean their house, open their doors, say, come, drink coffee, eat brownies, let's hear God's word, and let's get together. Yesterday was awesome. There were dozens of people here um, to serve for the Strawberry Festival. Pray. None of them came asking, what am I going to get out of this? They just came 
to give. And it's beautiful. And so I want us all to have an understanding that, that uh, even as I look at our finances, yeah, we're going to talk about that for a bit, right? As we look at our finances, 85% of all of the giving that comes here at Damascus Road is from those covenant members. That is awesome. The people that say, I'm on board here, are the ones that, that are investing and making things happen here. And so um, most of our members are living out what we hope for all members, and that is that they have relationships with the people of God, and they have responsibilities to the people of God. And yet, even in, as there is in Corinth, as encouraging as all this is, there are people in this church and issues in this church that, that are discouraging. There are members who use ministries and volunteer resources and don't serve at all. That said, yeah, I'll be part of a road group, and, and, and I will serve, and I will give, and do none of that. There are, as I asked the finance team to, to kind of dig into some finances to see where we were at as we were getting ready to make some big changes here in the next few months, and it found that 60% of our members are giving faithfully, sacrificially, and, and cheerfully, and regularly, and that is awesome. Praise God for that. We love, it is, it, it is actually encouraging to see people live out their faith in how they give through their finances. But if you're a math whiz at all, you know, if 60% are giving faithfully, that there's another 40% of, again, if you're new here this morning, welcome, right? We don't do this every week, all right? Glad you're here. Um, I'm just kind of talking to the family right now. There are 40% of covenant members who have pledged to give with their time, talent, and treasure to Damascus Road Church who have given next to nothing this year. Not a dollar. Some have even gone to retreats and not paid They are consumers. And I don't want you to think that I'm just the the pastor rebuking you. I am sad for you because you are missing out on getting to participate in what God is doing in the gospel through this church and to the community. And I'm sad for you because I've been you. When I was new, coming back to to, to Christ and, and coming to the church, for three, all I ever did at Mars Hill Church in Seattle, was fill a seat. I didn't give a dollar. I asked for counseling resources. I was glad somebody else would, would pay for, for preaching in the space and all those other things, and I just consumed. And as, and as that church grew from, from a small gathering to a, a multi-site colossus of a church, it's a little frightening to even think about how big they are now, um, but, but as they were reaching people for the gospel, I'd sit back and be like, yeah, look what our church is doing. We're doing some great stuff. I would say we. I was so arrogant. I did nothing there. Not one person came to that church. Not one person met Jesus because of what I did or how I contributed. That was to my shame. And thankfully, mature pastors that love me and disciple me said, here, yes, you are free in Christ. You are free to serve and worship Christ through how you live your life, particularly how you engage with the church. And by God's grace, have been able to live a life that, that I hope is somewhat of an example of, of gospel living and gospel mission. And so for you, if you claim to be part of a church, any church, but specifically this church, and all you do is attend or, or consume, I don't want you to assume that you're actually in communion with God and his people. He says that what you're doing isn't benign or insignificant. It actually says it's offensive. Look at the words Paul says. Paul wrote 
almost half the New Testament, and he is speechless with his righteous anger at people who are consuming rather than contributing. He doesn't, he doesn't even know what to say. And I think part of why he's offended is he says is that there are people in Corinth, and I know that there's people in this church who are living comfortably at home but bringing nothing to the table here at the church. That's what he finds most offensive. Not those who, you know, are, are single moms or have been unemployed or, or, or have health issues, but those who are living well by worldly standards. And let's be clear, almost all of us in America are living well by worldly standards, but who are not even giving their scraps to contribute to what's going on in the church. And so he said that what, what he's saying is that they are willing to consume and they are willing to enjoy the benefits of the community without investing in the community at all. This church exists for what it can do for me. Not I exist for what I can contribute to the church because of what God in Christ has done for me. See the difference? And so, they were willing to consume so much, it said, even from those who had contributed from so little, that it says that they got drunk. Literally, we need to look at this as when we are so drunk on our own consumerisms, it shows something to the people around us. How you act actually does affect those around you. And what it says, when you are so drunk on being a consumer, it says that you despise those who are sober-mindedly giving to the church, serving in the church, sacrificing for the church. It says you are humiliating them. And when you're drunk with a bunch of sober people, you look like a fool. Right? I don't want any of us to look like fools in the gathering of God's people. And Paul's, he's angry, like I said, and and he's angry because they've lost sight of even why they gather. Paul couldn't even call this communion anymore because he said, at Corinth, the Lord's table was so tainted with human selfishness that it was no longer under God's authority and God wasn't there. He said, I'm not going to be there because clearly you're under your own authority and doing your own thing. And so for those few consumers... Their purpose for gathering had less to do with remembering Jesus and more to do with getting their fill of their personal needs and desires. If that's what you want, if that's really what you want, Paul says, stay home. Don't come to a gathering if you just want to consume. If you want to know why we gather, why Damascus Road Church gathers, we gather to be part of a community of people who want to be participators and contributors to the body of believers and, and, and gather to remember who they believe in and why they believe in him. Quite frankly, this gathering is not about us. It is about Jesus. That is why we gather. So Paul moves on from his rebuke, and I'm going to move on from it too. And in the second part of the text, verses 23 through 26, he tells them to remember the gospel that they have received. We're not religious as Christians. And what I mean by that is we're not defined by how well we live out God's standards, but we are defined and dictated not by our actions, but rather Jesus' actions on our behalf. So we don't ask ourselves if we're worthy before God because of what we've done. We look at Jesus and say, oh, we are worthy for God, uh, before God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as, as hot and as mad and as frustrated as Paul is with those few consumers in the church, he doesn't just tell them to, to step up, 
to shape up or just ship out like some sort of angry junior varsity football coach who wants to cut half the team, right? I was the kid that probably should have got cut, okay? So I had the angry coach, not pulling your weight, Rich, get, get it going, right? He's not, he's not saying cut. No, he wants to invite them back into what the gathering is supposed to be about. And so he points them back to Jesus and reminds them of the gospel they've received and reminds them that communion, this meal is given to us by Jesus so that we will regularly show us the truth and the beauty of the gospel. So he's saying, okay, for the sinners out in the world, there's good news. For the consumers here in the church, there is good news. And that good news, he says, is that while Jesus, it says, was being betrayed, he gave us communion. I want us to think about that for a second. That He's, he's showing us that he's going to remind us of the cross as we, as, as a people, were ready to betray him. Judas is there. Judas leaves. God's people say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And what he's saying is, While all that's going on, Jesus is preparing to save his people. And so he invites us because he knows that we are all betrayers of God. All of us, myself, you, everyone in this world, everyone in any church, anywhere, we start out as betrayers of God because our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to consume what God forbade. And instead, every person since has been born disposed to consume rather than to contribute. If any of you have ever had a newborn baby, you know that baby comes out and does not say, Mom and Dad, how can I serve you today? What can I do to contribute to the family? I was thinking about taking on a part-time job because I know I'm expensive, right? No. It just cries and cries and says, feed me, feed me. Sometimes, like 2.30 in the morning, it's crying saying, feed me, feed me. Dad, I know that tomorrow you have to preach and it's Father's Day, but it's 2 in the morning and I need to be fed now. Okay? That happens, right? And, and it, it happens and it's fine when it's a baby. But he's saying we're to be mature in Christ and new creations in Christ where we're not infantile anymore, but we're these new creations. And so... All we do is just consume the resources of the earth, right? We, I'm not going to get all environmental. Don't worry about that. But the, the, we, are, we are all drunk on our own selfishness. And so all of our pride robs God of the glory that he is due as our creator and king. And if we are left alone, all we will do is constantly betray God and set ourselves up as kings and queens of our own kingdom all the way to a path of destruction where God can't even deal with us anymore. And by God's grace, we are not left alone. That is is why Jesus, the God-man, came to earth to show us that we are not alone and, and show us God's grace. He comes, Jesus comes, contributing his perfect, sinless life as a sacrifice for our sinful life of consumption. And on that night... As the world's preparing to betray him, he lays out his plan for how he's going to save them. And that night was was significant as well for God's people because that night was Passover. Where all of God's people in Jerusalem were remembering the God who took them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them a promised land. That's what they were doing. And so he says, I'm going to do this on Passover. You're doing it to remember my deliverance from sin in Egypt. I'm going to give you a new meal to help you remember your deliverance from sin 
and the new heavens and the new earth that's to come. And in doing so, Jesus is hearkening back. He says there's a new covenant. He goes all the way back to, to a prophet, Jeremiah. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen. But Jeremiah 31, hundreds of years before Jesus on that Passover night is laying out communion of a new covenant that he's going to give in his blood, a prophet comes to speak to God's people and says, there is going to be a new covenant coming. And this is what he says. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's God's people. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, because we always, every time God makes a promise, we betray it. And we are faithless where he is faithful. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, so God's people are his bride. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, the poor, to the greatest, the rich, declares the Lord, for I will forgive them their iniquity, that means their brokenness, and I will remember their sin no more. There's a new covenant. That's where we take communion. And so these elements that we see, these symbols, the bread, the cup of either wine or juice, they're not significant on their own. Okay, I don't want us to mistake, as sometimes folks in the church have, that there is something mystical or magical about what is at this table. To be clear and blunt, I'm pretty sure the bread came from Safeway and the juice came from Costco. Okay? The wine is from Trader Joe's because that's where all good Christians get their wine. Okay? Right? So I don't want us to downgrade its significance, but I want us to know the significance is not in what these are, but in who they point to. And so communion is only as significant as the person that gave it to us. Jesus is the one that gave us communion. The text says he took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is about me and what I'm doing for you. It's beautiful. So the significance of the death of Jesus should always be at the center of what we do. The death of Jesus, the cross, and and its significance should dominate every service we have. And so if you're a Christian or or you're just seeking something and you're looking for something more significant or more new or better than the cross, you will not find it. Jesus says, this is a one-time sacrifice. My perfect life in exchange for all your sin on the cross, it cannot be recreated, but absolutely it will be remembered for generations. And that is why we gather. And so Jesus establishes this dinner, this meal, and he provides all of it. He provides it by his body and his death. And he invites people to it. This is not an exclusive meal. It's significant, but Jesus has invited everyone to come partake in the sacrifice that is given to him by his body and shed blood on the cross. And yet we look at it and see it as insignificant and and just simply pass by. I was amazed yesterday at something as ridiculous as free hot dogs and water as we're, as we're walking up and down the street saying, hey, there's free hot dogs and water. How many people, nah, not interested. 
Okay, that's just hot dogs, right? It's not Jesus, but still, like, it, free hot dogs, free water. There's, like, no obligation there, nothing you have to do. And people, No, I'm not interested. How much more valuable and significant is the sacrifice of the God of the universe in our place for our sins, and yet so many in our world just look at it and say, eh, I'll pass. That is why we gather, so that we remember its significance, so we can share its significance with others. And so Jesus commands us to do this. Paul reminds us to do this. And he's made a promise to us. This is significant. He's made a promise to us. That's what a covenant is. He's made a promise to us as individuals. But he's also made a promise to us as the church, that we will not be defined by what we take, but by what he gave. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's death, it says we're also anticipating his return. It's a death with a promise. It's a death with a purpose. And that promise isn't just the forgiveness of sins, although that is amazing in its own, but it's a promise of new life and the life to come. Jesus says more than he's promising to return, ushering in a new heavens and a new earth with no more sin, no more selfishness, no more death, and no more, no more enjoyment that leads to drunkenness, just joy everlasting. That is a, a tremendous invitation. He's saying there is going to be a feast. Corinthians, you think you're throwing a great party now, but well, I'm going to throw a bigger one at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and everyone is going to enjoy And there's not going to be some who are drunk on grace and others that are hungry for mercy, but we're all going to come together and share equally. And he's saying, but that time has not come yet. So don't start partying like the world's over or like your hope and joy is in what's here, but start preparing and be vigilant for that time when I come back and we really get to celebrate because from now and then it is wartime mentality. We have some bread, we have some juice, we keep it lean because we're on mission for the gospel to share more and more people with what Jesus has done. And so, absolutely, this promise at the table is an individual promise for you, for you, for you, for me, that Christ died for you. But it's also a promise for his people. And so he's saying that those who enter into this personal covenant with the Lord, yes, we come as individuals, but naturally at the same time, we're entering a covenant relationship with God's people, the church. So we're never alone as Christians. We're never individuals as Christians. We are a people. Once we were not a people, but now we are. That's why we use the term at Damascus Road, covenant membership. Because we want to see ourselves as a church, as a covenant community, because we are trying to remember and be faithful to his promises. And so he has rebuked this church. He's reminded this church of the gospel. And now he's asking them to reflect and repent. And that's what we are going to do as well. He says, you are called to reflect on why you take communion. And we are even called to reflect why we gather with other Christians in a service as as one body. And so we don't just, as I said, take communion as individual Christians. He says, each one took their own meal. But we're to be a united church body. And so we don't minimize this by letting it be routine. Okay, come to church on Sunday, sing a little bit. Actually, maybe I'll just come late and not sing at the beginning. Come for the sermon. Maybe not sing as much at the end. I'll go up and have this cup and bread and just have it be a routine. No, we, we do it each and every week because we, we believe it glorifies God the more often we remember what he's done through the cross. 
So we don't have communion Sunday. We have communion every Sunday. Because the communion is why we gather. It's, it's more significant and important than, than what I do up here or what we do in singing. It is the most significant part of our entire service. And so Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is infinitely important. And so is the fact that he's returned, is to return rather. And so this Corinthian church was undermining that significance. They, they were saying communion wasn't as important, that this gathering isn't as important by what they were doing in their hearts and actions. For that church, and I pray this never happens to us, but for that church, the death of Christ was not central. The return of Christ was not something they anticipated or looked forward to. And certainly the love of Christ is not what controlled those people. What controlled them was their loves of themselves. We are to not be that way. And so if you, he says, if we take communion that way, we're doing so in an unworthy manner because we're thinking it's about us when it's about him. And so he says, if you're going to identify yourself with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, if you're going to say you're part of his body of believers, the church, that's why he says discerning the body, talking about Christ's body and the body of the church, you're not thinking about those two things. And all your outward actions show greed, selfishness, insensitivity, he says, you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He's saying, you're on the side of the betrayer. You're on the side of the crowd that shouted, crucify him. Rather than on the side of the people who said, yes, I'm so glad God's crucified and I'm not. Who do you want to identify with? And so, it was these attitudes that brought about Jesus' death. And so we have to examine our motives and actions seriously before we come to the table. So we're going to get a little uncomfortable. And we're going to ask ourselves some, some difficult questions before we come to the table this morning. You can write them down if you like. The notes will be online, so you don't have to. But I, I really just want you to think about these things before we come up this morning. I'll run through them relatively quickly. So you're getting ready to come to the table thinking about Christ's body and the body of the church, how have your actions and attitudes either undermined or built up the covenant community here at Damascus Road Church? What do you think about the other people in this congregation? Do you think about them at all? Do you see them as your brothers and sisters in Christ or just other humans that for our cause for annoyance? How do you think about the less fortunate or the less equipped or simply those that are different from you? Do you have preferences that you hold tightly to on who you will let be in your company? I don't want to hang out with people from that road group. I don't want to hang out with people from that campus. I, got, I got my people and that's, that's enough. Let's do the next 30 years together, right, and not talk to anybody else. For you specifically, why do you gather on Sunday? Why are you here this morning? Is it to be with, with Jesus and his people, or do you have some other motive for being here? When you're not here, why are you not here? Have you found something in the world that's so much more captivating? Little league game, or, or vacation, or fishing, or, or any number of other distractions to say, no, I can't even set aside this, this hour, this hour and a half to be together with God's people and remember communion? Here's a fun one. This was most convicting for me. 
how, how do you talk about your church? Oh, this one wasn't convicting. The other one was. Sorry. How do you talk about your church with people from other churches or with non-Christians? If you're a member here, I'm talking to the members. If you're a member at Damascus Road, the only thing this world knows about our church is you. Most of them probably haven't met me, probably for their benefit. Um, most of them haven't met Sam or any of the other elders. They just know you. And how you talk about this church is all they know. Some of them who are non-Christians, maybe all they know about Jesus is how, and his people is how you talk about them. How do you talk about other churches or ministries to those around you? This one was convicting for me. You get fired up by an internet preacher you don't like and want to badmouth them on the web. You want to badmouth the church down the street. You want to be, think that for a second that we are the only gathering of God's people in this city, in this county, in this world that's doing things that are faithful to God? No. We are one small little outpost in an entire world that needs to be infected with the gospel. And we need every other church in this city and every other city to be built up and, and faithfully point people towards Jesus. Here's a very practical one that should be relatively easy for you to answer. When did you last ask what you could do to help or serve here at Damascus Road Church? Compare that. When was the last time you asked a pastor or asked somebody else to serve you in some way? I want to be clear on that. We have people who kids go to children's hospital. And I don't show up and say, by the way, I'm supposed to serve in Kids Road this Sunday. I hope you can find a sub, right? We are loving and gracious, and we are here to help each other when we are in need. But when your life is healthy and things are going well, I hope that you are contributing for the times when, when you're going to be in need. When did you last ask what you could give here at Damascus Road? When did you come up to somebody and say, what does the church need financially, and how can I help with that? What does somebody else in the church need financially, and how can I help with that? It's a beautiful thing when a man comes up and says, I have daughters who I love, but I know there's daughters whose daddies don't love them enough, who may be single moms. I want to give some money that you guys can give to them. Praise God. Love that when that happens. When did you last ask what you could learn, not just so you could become smarter, but so that you could teach others and help them grow in their knowledge of the gospel? And thinking about the cross, when you consider the freedom from eternal sins, consequences that Jesus gives us on the cross? Is that something you just respond to with indifference? That's nice. Or, or, or is it, and by doing so, you're minimizing sin, or do you respond joyfully in gratitude, knowing that your sin is serious, serious enough that God sent his son to die for it? And, and do you think that that message, that good news of the gospel, is something that you want others in the world to hear and respond to positively? And you want to actively try to make that happen in some way, shape, or form? Or are you just glad that somebody told you the gospel and you're saved and that's good enough? So as you ask yourself those questions, Paul says to wait. And, and, it, and I, I think that many of us here, honestly, we're going to hold back because we feel unworthy. And the absolute truth this morning is that you are unworthy. I am unworthy. We are all unworthy because we are never perfectly worthy. It's Jesus that makes us worthy. So there is good news here, right? That, that taking communion is the declaration of our unworthiness and, and, and identifying with Jesus' worthiness on our behalf. 
And so each of us, if we are a Christian, we, we are not obligated to reach some moral high ground or some state of perfection where you can answer each of those questions with a, with a yes or a positive remark. But each one of us is called to reflect on our hearts, to reflect on our attitudes, to reflect on our actions and say, okay, God's called me to be here. I'm here. Am I moving this direction? And so are, are you moving? Some of you need to run to this table when it's communion time. Others of you need to just pause and take a minute to reflect. And so after we reflect, we are to repent, he says. And what that means, that can be, that can be a hard word to hear, but in, in some sense I think it's beautiful. Because gives, God gives us repentance as a gift, and he says, I have given you the ability in the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and turn to faithfully follow me. And he invites us to it. Because he knows that in repentance... We are going to find joy the more we focus on him and focus on others and less on ourselves. And so, we come to church for the purposes of, of lifting up gospel truth, for living in gospel community and attempting gospel lives on missions. And so we praise God that we are not condemned as these consuming betrayers of the world, but God says he loves us as his children. That is beautiful. He loves us enough, he says, to discipline us with hard words. He's not condemning us here. He's inviting us graciously to repent. And if you feel like you got spanked a little bit this morning, that's okay. Because he's saying it's for your good because I want repentance from you for the purposes of your correction so that you can more faithfully commune with his body, the church, because of his body on the cross. So we're going we're gonna to reflect. We're going to repent, and then we're going to come to the table and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have received. If you're a member here, you know, we're going to give our tithes and offerings, not as consumers, but because we contribute to the body of believers. And all of us, each of us, can sing loud praises to this king who was slain for the sins of his people, and he says we'll return in victory and glory. Please bow your heads in prayer with me.